we're going to start this with a mock cold call, and then we'll go on and we'll talk about uh, some ways to, you know, we'll talk a little bit behind the scenes of the cold call and ways to prepare and things like that. But uh, we're just going to start it the way that I would normally start class. So today we're going to talk about Parker versus 20th Century Fox. If you've read the case, that's great. If not, no big deal. Um, uh, so Ms. Mentrek. Um, so um, big Shirley MacLaine fan. Do you like it? Uh, I definitely cried. But... All right. Well, <laughs> then I guess you deserve that Academy Award. Um, so, uh, what's going on in uh, what's going on in Parker? Sure. So we are in California in the late '60s, 1970, um, and Shirley MacLaine contracted to star in a musical film, um, and that movie did not come to be. Uh, the studio offered her a role in a Western film instead. Uh, she turned it down and then filed suit in California to collect the compensation that she was promised. All right, so she's gonna do this, she was gonna do this musical, right? They had this plan to do this musical about Amelia Bloomer. You familiar with Amelia Bloomer at all? No? So Bloomer Girls, I guess it was gonna be a great uh, film about Amelia Bloomer who was a, uh, um, uh, it's going to be a musical, com a musical comedy. Um, who's a Amelia Bloomer was a turn of the, I guess, previous century uh, feminist, right? Uh, who actually did not invent bloomers. That is a myth. Uh, but but uh, but was a big uh, booster of them, and eventually actually got they got caught up in this bloomer thing. And she actually, in the long run discouraged the wearing of bloomers because people had gotten so caught up in the fashion that they weren't paying enough attention to the issues. So this is an historic moment, right, in, in Hollywood. And Shirley MacLaine's going to be Amelia Bloomer, but like every case, something goes wrong. So what went wrong? Uh, so in this case, they elected not to make the movie. Uh, the studio sent her a letter um, saying that they were going to breach their contract, uh, but that to avoid damages, they offered her a role in Big Country, Big Man. Okay, so from Bloomer Curl, right, to Big Country, Big Man, okay? So, right, it's contracts, we gotta know the terms. So, what kind of terms? What, what, what are the terms of the original agreement, right? Because they're uh, gonna breach that agreement, so. Yeah, so the terms of the original agreement, she would star in this musical. Folding money, right? Even even today, seven fifty. Yeah. That's real money, I take it. right? Um, <laughs> uh, she would get that compensation, and then she also had uh, a little bit of she had approval rights over uh, the director, something about the screenplay, and uh, like the choreography director. Oh. All right, so she gets this money, right? She gets seven hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. And uh, she gets to be in a musical, right? And and uh, this is a thing for Shirley MacLaine. She was a uh, she was a, she did singing and dancing and stuff like that. Um, and she's got these approval rights, right, for the dance director and the director. And um, all right, so 20th Century Fox, what are they what are they doing here? They're gonna they're gonna breach. How are they gonna breach? They're going to breach. Oh, hello. <laughs> They're going to breach by no longer uh, producing Bloomer 
the Bloomer movie, um, and instead uh, want to offer her this dramatic film. She'll no longer have the approval rights, uh, and she'll be in Australia as this dramatic lead. Okay, so any question at all that they're not breaching? No, they have admitted that they're breaching. Right, so they basically admit that they breach, although I think maybe we should come back and revisit that in a minute. Um, and so what's their argument, right? They admit that they breached. So contract's supposed to pay her 750. She wants her 750. Yeah, problem. so they um, assert an affirmative defense that uh, they breached, but they uh, don't have to pay because she failed to mitigate She damages. failed to mitigate. So what does that mean? What does it mean to fail to mitigate damages? Uh, it's essentially a concept where if your employer breaches their contract to you, you can't just sit around for the period of employment doing nothing. You have to take some efforts to try to find comparable employment or somehow um, make the damages lesser. Okay, right. So limited to employment contracts? You don't remember? <laughs> I don't think. No, I think it's also in like torts and anything where you can collect it. Well, so I mean, but so but specific to contracts, right? So there's this concept of mitigation. And here we have this instance, right, where they were going to pay her 750 to do something, right? They basically, um, they decide they're not going to do that thing, right? And so now they don't want to pay her the 750. And the general argument is, well, you know, we offered you this other thing. We were going to pay you the 750 anyway. You should have done it. So that sounds reasonable to me. So who wins? Charlie uh, so McLean wins. Okay. So why? Uh, so the court filed or uh, had a summary judgment uh, that the studio hadn't um, asserted enough facts to sort of say that uh, she had failed. Okay, so one of the things that's going on here, right, is that we're at summary judgment, mm -hmm. right? So uh, that's going to affect how the court approaches the problem or the, the kind of information the court's going to want with regard to that. But I want to try to bracket that for a second. And um, so they were going to give her 750. They were going to make the movie. They don't make the movie. They're still going to give her the 750. They, they want to give her the 750 to do something else, but that's not okay. So I'm trying to figure out why that's not okay, right? Why can't, you know, I mean, what she's, you know, what's she supposed to do? Is she just going to sit around and do nothing and collect her 750? I mean, that sounds, that sounds like a good deal, right? That's the deal that I want. So, um, uh, yeah, so why doesn't she have to take this other job for Big Country, so Big Man? The court says that it's a, type of, a kind of employment that's different and inferior from what she was offered. Different and inferior? Or inferior? Different yeah, and so I mean... Inferior. Okay, so let's think about this. So how is it different? This one is both different and inferior. Okay, so let's talk about that. So court figures that they come up with this test, right? Different or inferior. So how is it different or inferior? So it's different in that uh, a musical is different in kind from a dramatic western. It requires her to do different things and be living in a different place. And it's inferior in that she doesn't have those same approval rights that she had under the well, so, I mean, she doesn't get to approve the dance director in Big Country, Big Man. What, what does that matter? Yeah, there's no dance director. There's no, I mean, right, there's, there are a limited number of Westerns in which there are dance directors, but this is not one of them. <laughs> so, um, okay. 
Okay, so there are these differences, right? So let's say that I drive dump truck, right? I'm, we form a contract, I'm gonna drive a dump truck for you, and it's gonna be a yellow dump truck, right? And you breach, right? Say, hey, I'm not gonna do that. Instead, I've got this orange dump truck for you to drive, right? I pay the same, same hours, same location, all that jazz, but, right, different color. What do you think? Um, I'm a lawyer. Yeah. Well, I would, try to assert an affirmative defense, but plead facts that they are not different. Okay, so, but they're different, right? One's yellow, one's orange. Mm -hmm. So you're gonna have to pay me anyway, I don't have to drive the dump truck? So I think the question would be, is that a reasonable difference? And I think that the issue here was that um, 20th Century Fox didn't assert that the differences were unreasonable. Well, but I mean, I mean, isn't that, I mean, isn't that the crux of their argument, right? We, we offered her this alternative employment. She refused this alternative employment. I mean, it seems to me that there's a pretty big gap here, right, between what she wants, which is $750,000 for doing nothing, right, and what they want, which is to pay her and have her do this thing that's slightly different. And I'm trying to figure out, right, how much is there? So in my dump truck case, do I have to drive the orange dump truck in order to get paid, or can I sit at home? I think that if the court determined that that was a reasonable Okay, but what, but what do you think? Is it different or? Okay, so what's the deal? So why do, why do I have to drive the dump truck, but Shirley MacLaine doesn't have to be in the drama? Yeah, I think it then becomes like a spectrum of the differences, right? Like the color of the exterior of a car has less of an impact on the types of skills that you're using um, and sort of how you are doing your job required to perform in a musical are different than what would be required of her to perform in a Western drama. Okay, so there's some difference in there. I mean, but I'm still not exactly sure what that difference is going to be. So what about the dissent? So Mr. Yost, what, what does the dissent have to say about all this? Uh, oh, that is really hot. Okay, uh, I'm going to hold it down here. <laughs> Uh, so the dissent starts off by basically saying that in their mind, the question here is, ha was the plaintiff acting reasonably in their attempt to mitigate? Um, and in the where, court does, where does that come from? Where is this reasonableness? So I've got different, right, I've got different or inferior over here from the majority, and now you're talking about reasonableness. So where does that come from? So the majority actually did talk about reasonableness um, in one of the footnotes, but basically said that in their opinion, the reasonableness only refers to if the plaintiff in their efforts, not necessarily what, if they're differentiating between the different types of employment, but did they reasonably like try to mitigate their damages? And it seems like the dissent's opinion is that it hinges more on if the differences between the two types of employment um, are reasonable, or, or were they reasonable in rejecting it as a different or inferior kind of employment? Okay, reasonable in rejecting. So the dissent thinks that McLean has to be reasonable in rejecting the alternative. And so then what is the, Majority think the reasonableness has to be? They, for, my understanding of reading the, the footnote was uh, that they were they cited a case and said like the effort has to do with, uh, they, they refer to effort instead of, because um, it, it says in, in each case the reasonableness referred to was that of the efforts of the employee to obtain other employment that was not different or inferior. Okay, and what kind of efforts did McLean make here? 
She didn't have to make any efforts here. Right, I mean, they offered this thing up, right? Big country, big man, here it is. She didn't do anything at all. So if we're gonna evaluate the reasonableness of her effort, that's gonna be kind of hard to do. She didn't make any effort to find another job and she wasn't, and the, the movie studio isn't asking her to make any kind of effort to find another job. So, okay. That's possible, right? So now we've got these two different approaches. Um, okay, so what do you think? Do you think the, who do you think's got the better, the better part of this argument, she asked? Um, honestly, I feel like the dissent is more, um, I, I think I agree more with the dissent um, in that, well, because their, their other part of it too is that they, they weren't necessarily saying these types of employment are not different or are different they were basically saying that should have been up for a jury to decide. Like there was a tribal issue of fact there. Okay, so that goes to the summary judgment standard, mm -hmm. right? So the case is on summary judgment. So the question in the summary judgment case, right, is whether or not there's a tribal issue of fact, right, or there's a, uh, a, an issue of material fact. So, um, okay, but look, I mean, there are all these cases, right? So different or inferior. So why isn't, I mean, this is different or inferior, isn't it? So what's all this talk from the dissent about the reasonableness of her decision? Uh, they think it's interesting that the majority latched on to that phrase specifically because uh, other California courts had held um, other like uh, other terms as uh, substantially similar comparable employment in the general line of employment, and they thought it was interesting that the majority latched on to different or inferior as the standard, um, and th they do kind of say. We don't think that that should be the standard, but if that's okay, if that's how you want to use it, but they think they're distorting that standard by saying that just the mere fact that these two films are different makes them different enough that they're, that it, she was reasonable in rejecting the mitigation at that point. Right, so do you, I mean, so, but wasn't she? I mean, isn't big country, big man, obviously not as good? I, I think what I struggle with with that, from her perspective, if I were the plaintiff, is looking at what she what she's saying that if it were me and I'm a musical actor and I'm being told that no you need to go do this drama like how does that that doesn't look like it's a good mark on her career necessarily maybe if she's trying to establish herself as a musical actor then maybe being in a western drama is is significantly different and could hurt her career so that I mean there's a lot of wiggle room there I think with arguing if it's different enough to but don't the terms of the contract prohibit that argument, right? So, uh, you know, one of the terms of the contract is, hey, our only obligation here is to pay you the 750, right? So we don't have to make the movie, we have to pay you the 750. And doesn't that mean that she doesn't really have a claim to all this other stuff, right? I'm, you know, I'm glad to have this job. I want to establish myself as a musical actor, right? There's all these great things about, and it turns out people care about more than just how much money they make, right? They want to have other aspects of what they do, things on their, their resume, or they enjoy doing it or don't. But it seems like the contract itself precludes that argument by saying, look, all we do, all we owe you is the 750. That there were other terms that she had control over, that she got refusal on the director, she got to approve the screenplay, and they admitted that this new one, because they claim there's not enough time to do that, that she doesn't. So, I mean, you could make the argument that that in itself is, that that doesn't have anything to do with the clause about just paying her. Like, they'd given her other privileges that they took away in the second contract that could have had a bearing on, on her career or how the movie progressed or and that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, that provision's a mess, right? Because that provision basically says, we only have the obligation to pay the 750 under the terms of this agreement, 
right? So on one hand, right, it looks like it's just talking about the 750. On the other hand, it invokes all the other terms of the agreement. Like, what are you supposed to do with that? So I think that's probably good enough to sort of establish the back and forth. Um, uh, and um, I thought, so I guess next we're going to sort of talk about ways that you might think about preparing this case, uh, uh, you know, to, to get called on. Thank you very much to, to Maureen and Seth. Great. So I, I don't know if you want to come up and join us here in case you want to add comments as we as we go along. But it's up, or you can you can talk from there. It's up it's up to you. Anyway, it's fine. So anyway, uh, what was all that? <laughs> what was that about? What what was the point of that? What what? Uh, how do you think about even beginning to prepare for that kind of experience? So uh, I want to talk a little bit about that point. You know how you might sort of approach reading this kind of. Materials. So this is a, a new kind of thing for many of you. Uh, reading a case, and you've 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 read it. You you kind of uh, had to struggle with it, and uh, and this is a lot of what you're going to be doing in the first year is reading these kinds of things, reading these kinds of cases, and preparing for class is actually a crucial part of the experience of uh, of law school. Uh, it's it's an important part of practicing law generally. It's easy when you see it on TV or you see it in the movies. People just sort of walk in and they just seem to just know everything and they just wing it. Uh, you, they never show you all the, the hours and hours that people spend preparing and, and thinking about how am I going to say this, how am I going to present it, how am I going to organize it. And that's a lot of what lawyers do. That's a lot of the, the value that lawyers bring to the table. And in fact, the first, since I'm an ethics professor, I will mention the first ethics rule is competence. You have to be competent and part of competent is being prepared. And so preparation is, is crucial. And preparation means reading. But it's not only reading. It's a certain kind of reading. Reading is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's got to be active reading. So what I mean, what I mean by active reading. So first of all, the easy part is you're going to be reading a lot of words that you've never seen before. You've never heard the, I mean, even the dissent used these fancy words, not even legal words, they, real words. I, I had to look them up. I don't know, what, what the heck is <laughs> intendment or whatever it was that the dissent said. So. Look them up. If you, if you come across a word, whether it's a legal word, you should have a legal dictionary or access to a legal dictionary. They're probably all online now anyway. So if you come across a word you don't know, look it up and, uh, and, and write it down. Write it down in, the, in, the, in your book and in, in, in somewhere else and, and, and try, to, try to remember. You'll, in a sense, what you're doing in part is learning a new language. It's not completely a new language, uh, but a lot of this language is new. How do you talk? What is an appropriate way for lawyers to talk? What kinds of things are sort of inbounds or out of bounds for lawyers to say as part of what you're, uh, what you're doing? You want to, in addition, uh, not treat these things like sort of your novels that you want to put on your shelf and keep in pristine uh, condition. You want to take notes, take the hell out of them, take notes <laughs> all over the place on these things. I'm a highlighter myself, so here's my highlighting. You know, I have, I have a whole color coding system that I've used since law school or you know, maybe since I started teaching. I have blue for certain things, red for certain things. Uh, Professor Nockmore has his own system. So whatever system works for you that you develop, you can use, and you're not a highlighter, that's fine. If you just want to take notes or underline or circle things, uh, do that. So I'll tell you one thing, uh, just as a, as right off the bat. You have the name of the case, right? It's being Parker versus 20th Century Fox. All right, and, and Professor Nockbar, one of the questions he asked was, who won the case? And you may have read this, oh gosh, who's Parker? Who's 20th Century Fox? Who won this case? 
What I always did from the beginning of law school was I circled the winner <laughs> in the name of the case. <laughs> so that way, at least I could know the answer to that question. If someone asked me who won the case, I circled it. <laughs> so that's the winner. I also, so there's a plaintiff and a defendant, right? You learned about that from Professor Spencer earlier today, right? So um, I put a little P over the plaintiff and a little D over the defendant, or if you want to be fancy, use Greek letters, uh, pi or delta, right? You know, some people will use uh, those things. So I know who the plaintiff is, who the defendant is. Uh, sometimes I'll put underneath the names of the people who they are. You know, so Parker is the, quote, employee in this case. Fox is the employer, right? So what, what are the roles that each of them is playing in the, uh, in the case? Uh, and then I will also put who is appealing and whether the court is affirming or, re or reversing the appeal. So all that, that information, so I can't get tripped up by that. Uh, and I have it in my book so that when I'm teaching it and I forget who won the case, I can look in my book and say, oh yes, now I remember who won the case. Parker won the case. Okay, so, uh, so do that. So take note, whatever system works best for you, take notes, circle things, uh, write things in the margin. Circling, another thing that I like to circle, another question you, you heard Professor Nakbar asked, uh, and this is a very important thing in terms of reading cases and, and any kind of law, statutes, constitutions, uh, what, regulations, whatever you're reading, you want to pay particular attention to things like conjunctions, and, or, but, if, all those things, I circle every one of those, because those things obviously can be very important different or inferior versus different and inferior. Those are two very different standards. Now, it may, not, it may or may not make a difference in this case, but in some cases, whether it's and or or, or if or unless or those kinds of things can make a huge difference. So I, I circle those. Uh, if, I, if I come across a word, I don't know, I'll circle that and put the definition somewhere in my, uh, in my notes. So all those kinds of things are, are part of active reading. But the more important part, I think, of active reading is to think about questions that come up as you, uh, as you read. Think about counter-arguments or, or things that might be said. So these are cases that were, uh, these are appellate cases, mostly what you'll read is appellate cases. You'll read some trial court opinions as well. So these are cases that some lawyers thought were worth bringing and worth arguing about and the losing lawyer thought it was worth appealing, right? So, there are probably arguments to be made on both sides, and, and part of the discussion that you heard from Professor Nakwar, I think, brings that out, that there are arguments that can be made on both sides in these cases and other cases. So uh, in this case, you're helped out to some extent because you have a dissent, which gives you some of the arguments uh, against what the majority of the court is, is saying. But if there's no dissent, try to think of those things yourself. As you, as you read, because some lawyer would have had to think of those things when, when the case was brought. One way to think about it is, suppose the case in the book were going up on appeal again. Suppose there were a super Supreme Court above the Supreme Court of California, and you were going to be the lawyer arguing against this case, what would you say? What kind of arguments would you, uh, would you make against that? Or think about there may be another case. You may be an employment lawyer in, in California, and you'll have another case, and you'll have to either distinguish this case, say why, no, 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 this case is very different. The, the, actor, should have, the actor should have taken this substitute, or it's exactly the same. It's just like Parker, right? So even if the case is not further appealed, there'll be other cases where there'll be variations on, on this. So you want to think about, okay, what are the limits of this? How, how far do we want to go with these things? Another thing you want to think about because it's a contracts case, so in, one of the things we think about, and, and Professor Nakbar touched on this a little bit uh, in contracts, is 
the course is not simply for lawyers who are litigating, but also for lawyers who are business lawyers, who help write draft contracts. So in a contracts case, you want to be thinking about, all right, suppose this case came down and I'm an employment lawyer, I work for a movie studio, let's say, do I want to now change anything in the contracts that I have with my actors as a result of this case? Do I want to... Uh, put in any kinds of qualifications or rewrite things in a certain way because that's really how contracts get drafted. Something gets litigated and one side loses and they say, oh gosh, I should have put that in my contract or I should have written it differently. So you want to think about those kinds of things as, uh, as well. So, so those are at least some, some general points. I want to turn now to how one might think about sort of breaking down the opinion, and, and you're going to talk a lot about this when you learn about briefing cases and, and things like that, but th the opinion here has a certain structure to it, and most opinions have this kind of structure. They may not put everything ex in exactly the same order, but they generally cover the same kinds of things. Sometimes they make it easier for you, especially in the more recent cases, because they put little headings, like Roman numeral headings, Roman numeral one or Roman numeral two, and then you could sort of see how they're dividing up the sections. This case doesn't do that, so there are some cases, especially the older ones, that don't, uh, don't do that. But it's pretty easy to sort of figure out where the different sections are in this, uh, in this opinion. So most opinions will start out with the facts, right? So Professor Nachbar asked about the facts, and there was a little discussion about what the, uh, what the facts are. And so that's where the opinion starts as well. It starts out by setting forth the facts. And so you want to think about, and we will talk about in, in our classes, about where these facts come from. They don't just drop down magically out of the sky, all right? And so um, this is one of the things that lawyers have to do, is they have to take, for example, the stories that their clients tell them and make a narrative about it that makes sense from a legal point of view, as opposed to a layperson's point of view who might tell this story very differently. You can imagine if Shirley MacLaine walks into her lawyer's office and starts telling this story, she would not recite the facts the way they're recited in this case or the way uh, the students so ably recited the, the facts. She would have a very different way of explaining what happened to her, as would the lawyer for Fox. If he were asked to explain, or, or the uh, let's say an executive for Fox, Zanuck or whatever, uh, whatever his name was, uh, who was the, the executive for Fox, would have a very different way of explaining uh, the facts. So, uh, so when you look at the facts, you want to try to think about, you know, how did these facts come to be? That's one, one kind of thing you want to uh, think about. But you also want to think about things like, how are the facts set forth in the opinion? Because one of the things that lawyers do with facts, not only do they put them together and try to make a coherent story about them that fits into some legal framework, but they're also trying to persuade you with the facts. Right? And we, we know from, from reading all sorts of different kinds of materials that you can use words to persuade people of various things, and there are more obvious and more subtle ways to do it. So one question you might ask is, okay, when the facts are being presented here, are they being presented in a neutral way? Are they being uh, biased in any way? Uh, are they telling us things in order to sort of make us sympathetic uh, to the way that they're, uh, they're seeing the case, right? So for example, the majority in the opinion uh, mentions the fact that Shirley MacLaine uh, was only given a week to make a decision about this, uh, about this movie. What does that have to do with anything? 
right? Well, what it might have to do with is here's the majority sort of telling us we ought to be sympathetic to Shirley MacLaine because she was only given a week to make this crucial decision in her, uh, in her life. So whether or not that's what the court had in mind is not clear, but you always want to be on the lookout for those kinds of things when you read, uh, when you read the facts. Are they, uh, are they being biased? Are there facts that are missing? Right? So you may look at this case and you say, gosh, uh, I think I would know how to resolve this case if I only knew this other fact. <laughs> right? Or there may be other facts, maybe you don't know what the answer is, or you just think, you know, why didn't they, why didn't they write down this fact? Why didn't they tell us about uh, this? You know, uh, they don't tell us, for example, why it was that Fox didn't make the picture. They don't tell us why Shirley MacLaine turned it down. Does that matter? You know, do we care why either of those things happened? Right? Those, are, those are questions that you might want to ask and that a professor might be interested in pursuing with you as well. Right? What other facts might you want to know? So are they saying too much? Are they saying too little about what is, uh, what is happening in the, uh, in the case? And which facts are, to use a legal word, material? Which are the relevant facts that you really need to answer the question that's being presented in the case? And, and this is a case where the, the, the opinion is pretty sparse. It's pretty concise in its statement of the facts. It doesn't tell us very much other than what the court thinks is necessary uh, to resolve the case. Sometimes if you have a dissent, the dissent may bring up other facts that the majority doesn't bring up. That doesn't really happen here, but in other cases you read the dissent of, well, you know, the majority makes it sound all this way, but they're not talking about this other thing, which to me makes the case very different. So you want to pay attention to those kinds of, uh, those kinds of things. So the facts are one section of the opinion. The next section of the opinion, and sometimes this is put first in opinions, it, it varies, uh, is what's called the procedural history. So this is sort of what Professor Spencer went through with you. What happened uh, to this case once it was filed? So one way to think about it is the facts are what the people in the case did. The procedural history is what the lawyers did once the lawyers got the case. So the procedural history will tell you, well, the case was filed and there was a complaint, there was an answer. They mentioned in this case in, that the complaint had two different claims in it. There were two different arguments, two different sometimes called counts uh, that were made. And that's another source of things to think about. Well, if there are two counts, is the court discussing both? Are they the same? Are they different? If they're different, how are they different? Right? So that's, that opens up a whole other area of questioning that a professor might or might not pursue depending on uh, what their interest is in a particular uh, case. The procedural history will often tell you um, if there's a lower court opinion, they may summarize the lower court opinion. They may then talk about, okay, well, this person appealed and this is a summary of their argument in the appeal. Here's what they're contending uh, in the appeal. When you see those, you want to make sure that you understand what those arguments are because it's very likely that a professor will ask that. I think Professor Nakbar asked that question. Okay, so what is the basis uh, for, uh, for the appeal here? Right? So you want to make sure you can articulate uh, those, kinds of, uh, those kinds of things. So, uh, so the procedural history is, is the next part, the next section uh, of the opinion. The next part is the court sets forth a couple of rules or a couple of principles that the court thinks are relevant for resolving this case. And in this situation, the rules are based on 
cases, case precedent. This is what's called a common law case. You will learn about, uh, you will learn about that. Uh, but the court is setting forth these rules. Now, one thing that's interesting, and uh, Professor Nachbar didn't get into this I mean, a little bit, uh, he did, but in, in, in many cases you will, um, the court will sometimes state a rule, and it may then explain to you why this rule exists, or why, you know, how, how courts have come to think about the reasoning or the rationale behind this rule. Now, interestingly, in this case, the majority doesn't do that. It doesn't really explain why we have this rule. It just sort of says, here's the rule. Now, the dissent does a little bit more. The dissent gives us a little bit more information about why we have this rule of mitigation, this mitigation rule and the, uh, and the exception. But this is another area for exploration, right? Because you read a rule in, in a case, and the first thing you should ask about, if the court doesn't ask this question or the court doesn't address this question is, okay, why would we have this rule? How would the world be a worse off place if we didn't have this rule? Or what is this rule uh, about? What is, the, what is the point of it? So that's another area where you can, you can look at it and say, okay, here's a question. Here's a way to think about um, being a more active reader. What's, what's the point of this rule? If the court gives you a reason, you can ask, is it a good reason? Do I agree with this reason? Or, or is there another reason? Is there a better reason for having this rule? Or should we not have this rule at all? Is this a stupid rule? Right? So that's another thing that you can, uh, you can think about. So, and that's really crucial because uh, as you will learn in, in your first year of law school, it turns out to be very difficult in many cases, especially these kinds of cases that you will be reading, to figure out how to apply a rule without knowing what the point of it is, uh, without knowing why we have the rule in the, uh, in the first place. And so uh, because the majority doesn't give us that, that, that gives room for a lot of questions about, okay, well, would you, would you think this is a meaningful difference or this is, is this a different or inferior kind of movie or that kind of, a different kind of inferior movie? So, uh, and it's very hard to answer that in part because we don't really know why we're making these distinctions. It doesn't necessarily mean that if we know why, it'll be any easier, but sometimes it is a little bit easier to, uh, uh, to do that. So we have the facts, we have the procedural history, we have the statement of the rules. In this case, the court then goes on to state the issue the issue. That's another thing that you will be asked to say. You know, what's the what's the main question on on, on the appeal? In this case, uh, really, what we have is we have a rule and we have kind of an exception. We have a general rule that has something to do with what's called mitigation. You have some obligation to take a substitute contract for the one that is not being um, performed. But there's a limitation on it. There's an exception. The exception is you don't have to take the substitute if the substitute is somehow different in some way that uh, the majority in the dissent have some uh, disagreements about. And so that's a, uh, of course, one key uh, kind of dispute, thing that will give rise to disputes um, in, in these kinds of cases, a, a rule and an exception. In many cases, you may have two different sets of rules, and the question will be, which set of rules is the more applicable one, depending on how you characterize what's going on in a, uh, in a case. So that's another source of, um, of question. So here we have the court actually telling us what it thinks the issue is, um, and that's another disagreement between the court and the dissent. The dissent has a different way, as, was, as came out in the discussion, um, of framing the issue, of stating what the issue is, and that's one of the sources of, of disagreement, and so therefore that's likely to be a source of 
questions from the, uh, from the professor. So uh, now in this case, the court also states a couple of things that aren't the issue, which is kind of an unusual thing to do, right? You know, usually they just say, this is the issue. But here the court says, there are certain things that aren't the issue. And part of that is also to highlight a difference between the way the majority is viewing what's going on, especially with respect to what's called reasonableness and the dissent, which has a different, uh, a different perspective on that. So again, you want to pay attention to those things. Uh, one other thing uh, that I just want to mention that, again, came up in Professor Nakbar's discussion, and that is footnotes. Right, so uh, you'll have footnotes in some of these opinions, and you know sometimes you're used to reading things. Say, ah, footnote. I don't need to pay attention to that. Don't skip the footnotes <laughs> uh, in these opinions. The footnotes are often very important for. I mean, so, so they they're used for a variety of reasons. There's no hard and fast rules about when you use footnotes, and courts use them for different reasons. Here, the courts are use the, the court and the center are using them for several different purposes. One, they're using them to sort of set forth things that are uh, too elaborate or too detailed. They don't want to clutter up the opinion with it. So you have these long, let's say, contract terms uh, or long quotes from a case or something like that. So you stick it in a footnote so it's not, uh, it's not busying up the, the language in the, uh, in the opinion. So that's one reason. Another reason may be to kind of respond to something, let's say, in, if there's a dissenting opinion, you might have a footnote in the majority opinion saying, well, the dissent says this, but the dissent is wrong for the following reasons. Or there may be some case that the, the court wants to distinguish, and they stick it in a footnote uh, to distinguish that case. That doesn't mean it's unimportant. Uh, it may be very important. That may just be the court trying to minimize something that actually is quite interesting and quite difficult, and they're trying to sort of you know, put, put it in the closet somewhere. So you, uh, you want to pay attention to that because you can be sure that professors will ask you about those things. Okay, well, did you look at footnote three? What did footnote three say about this? You know, how come, uh, how come that's not important, right? So uh, if they talk about, uh, you know, if they talk about things in there, think about, you know, why, why are they putting that in the footnote? Um, is there something to what's, what's going on, uh, what's going on there? Can All right. Jump, jump yeah, in. So do. one thing I'll say about footnotes is, remember you're reading edited case books. Right? So the court might use lots and lots of footnotes in its opinion, and that's fine. They can use them for whatever they want to do. And law review articles, oh man, even more so. Okay? But these are edited casebooks, which means that the casebook editor thought that the footnote was important enough to include in the case. These aren't all the footnotes in this case. These are just three of them. Right? There could be 25 footnotes in this case, and they took these three out. So you know, it's, it's context specific, but in, in case book cases, chances are decent that the footnotes are, were at least significant to the case book editor. Maybe not to the, the person who's teaching the case, but they were important enough to somebody to actually edit them into the case book. And sometimes the person that edited the case book is your professor, and so they <laughs> made that decision that it's important to include, and so that's a really nice clue to you that you can read it and it's something important. Yeah, I mean, speaking about case, it's actually uh, a good, th good thing that you brought up case books. So one of the things that's, that I think people don't pay enough attention to is sort of where something, where a case fits in with other things that you've been doing. So obviously, this is your first case that you're reading, so it doesn't fit into anything because this is the first one. But once you've read a couple, 
it's very common for a professor to say to you, okay, well, you've now read these three cases, and now this one, all right, so how does this case compare to these others? Is it, is it consistent? Is it inconsistent? How does it fit within the framework that you're trying to develop? Because every course is trying to develop a certain way of thinking about a body of law. How do we put all the pieces together? And another way to do that is by looking at the casebook. Where does the casebook put this case in? You know, where do they think it fits and why do they do it? So usually it's based on what the nature of the legal principle or the rule in the case is, right? So this is a case about mitigation, which has to do with uh, damages or remedies for breaches of contract. That's usually a, a topic in contract law. What are the remedies for breaches of contract? Now, interestingly, if you happen to look at the heading for this, this excerpt from the from the case, this case book, uh, we don't know, we, we're not given the whole table of contents and everything, but this case book, you can see from the heading, this case book puts this case in chapter one, and they title the chapter Legally Enforceable Promise Basic and Recurring Themes. So that means that these casebook authors put this case in the beginning because they think it's representative of some important themes that will be developed throughout the course. So that's another thing to think about. Okay, what themes do they think are important in this case? I mean, this case is about, you know, it's a very unusual case. Shirley MacLaine is, 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 is given this picture and another picture. What does this have to do with contract law generally? Why would there be any general themes coming out? So what are the general themes that you might identify from this case? You know, and it, it turns out, you know, we will talk about that when we, when we talk about contracts, you know, what, what, what the themes are, which may emphasize different themes to different ex extent. Uh, but that's another thing for you to think about as you, uh, as you read. Okay, so we have the facts, which I put in blue. <laughs> we have uh, the procedural history and the arguments made by the parties. I like to put those in green. I put the dissent in green, too, because I run out of colors after a while. Um, then we have the legal rules. I put the legal rules in red, right? So they're highlighted here. The issue I put in yellow. So there it is. And then we get to the analysis or the reasoning of the opinion. Now, most people, when they come to law school, think, Okay, I just have to memorize a bunch of rules, and then I study for the bar exam and learn all the rules, and, then, and that's fine. Uh, and the rules are important. However, more important, especially at the beginning, is the reasoning part, the reasoning part of the opinion. That's where you'll get most of the questions from the professors about, okay, they're making these arguments and applying the law to these facts. Do these arguments really make sense. How, you know, and, and, and of course there were a lot of questions from Professor Nakbar about exactly that kind of thing and more that he could have asked that he didn't in the interest of, uh, of time. So there are lots of ways to think about the reasoning section. The, the easiest is just to look at these arguments, you know, what, make sure you understand what the arguments are and ask whether or not they make sense. Do they make sense? Do they really do, do they, are they following the rule? I mean, you can go back and look at the rule, uh, and if you go back and look at the rule and look at how this court is applying it, uh, you could probably find things that don't really fit exactly the way the rule is, is stated. The rule is kind of, uh, you know, the, the rule was developed in, in other kinds of cases, and this is a, a different kind of case in certain ways, right? You know, so the, the rule was developed for employees, right? You could ask the question, you don't know anything about this, or you might not know anything about this, but is, is Shirley MacLaine even an employee? Right, so if, if she's not, what, what does this have to do with her? So that, you know, Professor Nockbar asked, well, does this apply to other cases as well, right? So that's one question. Well, is this rule generally applicable to these other cases? Does the rule apply, or has the rule ever been applied where the person who's breaching the contract is the one who's making the offer of the substitute? 
And if not, you know, should it? Should, they, should the people who are breaching get to sort of force a substitute uh, on you to, uh, uh, to take, right? Should, should, should we have different rules for that or not, right? So these are things that you could ask in terms of um, when, once the court starts the analysis, are they really following what the rule, uh, what the rule said? Of course, one common way to kind of test the analysis part is to ask hypothetical questions, and Professor Nakbar did that uh, with his example of the different colored uh, truck. You know, so sometimes professors will ask questions about using a different scenario than what's in the case. Sometimes they'll look at the case itself and ask you hypothetical variations based on the case. So one thing that's very common that you should pay very much attention to, if you have, in this case, you have the analysis section where the court gives essentially three different reasons for why it thinks this second movie, Big Country, Big Man, was meaningfully different uh, from the first. One is that it's a Western. Uh, the second is that it's filmed in Australia versus Los Angeles. And the third is the contract terms aren't exactly the same. You know, she had, uh, Shirley MacLaine had veto power essentially over the director and the script uh, in the first one, but not in the, uh, in the second one. And the court looks at those three things and says, oh, that's enough. Okay, we've heard enough. Uh, th those, those are meaningful differences, end of, uh, end of case. So. Anytime you have a court giving multiple reasons for something, that invites the natural question, all right, do you need all of these things? Is one of them enough, right? So it's very common, once you have these three things, you can, you can guess, a professor will ask something like, okay, well suppose the contract terms had been exactly the same. But, the, but it was still a Western and, uh, and it was still being filmed in Australia, right? Uh, would the case come out differently? Suppose it was still big country, big man, but it was being filmed in Los Angeles instead of Australia, right? So you could make all these kind of variations where you say, all right, you have one of the three things or two of the three things instead of three of the things. Would that make a difference to the, uh, to the majority? So anytime you have uh, cases where they're making multiple arguments in favor of a certain position, you could always ask that kind of, uh, always ask that kind of question. All right. Uh, one thing that I have to point out, because this is a pet peeve of mine in, in, in the majority opinion, although it shows up a little bit in the dissent's opinion as well, um, the majority talks about the fact that it is clear that the trial court correctly ruled. Clear. Clear is not an argument. <laughs> right. Anytime you see clear, uh, or you, you, you're tempted to use the word clear, you should hesitate to, uh, to do so. Because very often, not always, sometimes when someone says it's clear, it actually is clear. But sometimes when they say it's clear, they're covering up something that's not so clear. And they just want to convince you of something without making a good argument for it by just saying, oh, well, it's clear that this is, I mean, if it was so clear, how come the dissent is so exercised about it? How come the dissent has this long, elaborate response to what the majority is saying? You know, how could it be clear if, if you have this uh, very coherent and, and cogent argument on the, uh, on the other side? So be very wary. Anytime you see clearly or clear, or as the majority says, uh, by no stretch of the imagination can the these pictures be, uh, be considered similar? Uh, by no stretch of the imagination? Or is there a separate Oscar category for westerns and musicals and you know, things like that? Right? So the Oscar people don't see them as meaningfully different. I mean, they could. You know, Broadway has separate categories for musicals and others, but the, uh, the movies don't, uh, at least, least yet. I mean, I guess now they're having a separate category for popular movies. Is the Golden so. Globes or all sorts of like, Yeah, well, it depends. Right? So, I mean, so is it so by no stretch of the imagination? You can't imagine how you could, you could put westerns and musicals in the same category. Well, sometimes we do, right? So, uh, so, you know, so those are another, that's another form of question that one could ask. Now, 
one other thing that I want to mention just about the structure of this case is at the very end of the opinion, before we get to the dissent, the majority also mentions, and this also came up a little bit with Professor Nockmore's questioning, the majority mentions this alternative, this alternative way of thinking about the, uh, the case uh, based on the first footnote. So the first footnote hasn't been used so far. They just sort of stick it in there, and you might say, well, what is that first footnote doing there? They never, they never refer to it. Well, they refer to it at the very end of the opinion where they say, well, there might have been an alternative way to view this, uh, this case uh, where... Um, maybe mitigation wouldn't be uh, a question at all. Maybe there isn't even an obligation to mitigate in this kind of case based on uh, the nature of the contractual provision in footnote one. But the majority says, we don't need to get into that because we've already decided we've resolved the case <laughs> the way we've resolved it. We don't need to answer, give, her, give another argument in favor of our, uh, our result. Now, sometimes courts will give alternative arguments, especially if you have a lower court that uh, may worry about the fact that it can be reversed on appeal. And so the lower court, to cover its bases, because maybe they don't want to be reversed, they'll say, OK, well, here's one way that this person can win. And even if you don't like that way, here's another way that the person could win. But if you're at the Supreme Court of California, you don't have to do that. You don't have to <laughs> convince anybody because no one is going to be, no one's higher than you, at least with respect to California state law. This is not going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, this, uh, this case. So they don't have to do that, but they might. I mean, sometimes they might do it because they want to give guidance to the lawyers in that jurisdiction, so they want to give extra information, but they don't do that here. So again, here is another possible source of questioning. Because the professor can look at that and say, okay, well, what about this other argument? Could that have been better? Um, how come the dissent doesn't talk about this argument? You know, they want to send it back to trial, but they don't, they don't address this argument that the majority uh, sort of throws in at the, very, uh, at the very end, right? So that's another potential source of questions, something else to think about as you read the, uh, as you read the case. Uh, okay, so, uh, so I think that gives you a sense of the structure of the opinion. Of course, here we have a dissent, and uh, Professor Nakwar uh, brought out some of the ways in which the dissent approaches this case differently from the way uh, the majority uh, approaches it. But at least that gives you a sense of what I mean by active reading. When you're, when you're looking at these things, these are the kinds of questions that are likely to come up. Now, there is no way that you're going to predict all the questions that a professor can ask. And in fact, if you did, we'd be very upset <laughs> because then what are we doing here? You don't need us, right? You don't need us. Uh, if you can figure out all the questions uh, from, from reading the cases when you just sort of start out as, as beginning law students, then we basically have no function. You can just go read it on your own and, and be done with it. So, uh, so there's no... There's no shame or there's no embarrassment that you should feel in not, you know, like, oh, gosh, I never thought of that question. How did they come up with that question? You know, we've come up with these questions in part, you know, sometimes we've taught this case for many years and we've, you know, the more we read it, the more questions we think about. Or sometimes students will ask questions and we'll think, oh, that's a good question. I never thought of that. Then next year we ask that question. You know, for when we teach the uh, when we reach the case. So um, so there's you know there's no way that you're going to think of all the questions that we're going to ask. But this will give you at least a strategy for the kinds of things that are likely to give rise to uh, to questions that professors will will ask. So I will stop there and let Professor Nakbar tackle the question of. Okay, so why are we doing all this? <laughs> so uh, I was actually so I was going to say one or two things about what oh, uh, what uh, Professor Cohen said. So. But the first thing I was going to say was the last thing that he said, which is, you know, there's a lot of stuff in this case. 
we could sit down for a couple of hours and talk about all the different issues in this case. There are a couple basic rules of contract law that are embedded in this case that you would kind of have to understand in order to get the nuance of this case. You are not, you know, don't worry about that. If you understand what's happening in the case and you can basically track the reasoning, there's no way you're going to be able to anticipate all of the different things that we may or may not ask about it. In one year, I might ask one thing. In another year, I might ask a different thing, right, depending on what's going on in the class or what strikes my fancy that day. So don't worry about that at all, right? We will do that. We will figure it out. Now, the, the uh, corollary to that, which kind of goes into why we're doing what we're doing is, you know, when we start talking about the case, go with the flow. Right? You might show up to the class with an idea about what's going on in the case. Say, oh yeah, well, you know, the majority is clearly right. This, this Western, that's a stupid movie. I wouldn't even want to see that movie, much less be in it. Right? Well, that might not be where we're going. Right? We might be trying to go somewhere different. As long as you've got kind of the raw material in, in um, I don't want to say in your head, but uh, as long as you've processed the raw material, that's fine, and you'll be able to kind of go with us, and we'll pull you along, right? Uh, but if you show up and you've got a really fixed conception about what's supposed to happen in the case, you know, and you stick to that, that can make it a little bit tougher. So, you know, that being said, if the case isn't going, if the conversation isn't going the way you anticipated it to be going, that's fine, right? That happens all the time. And um, uh, that's really kind of why we do this at some level. So. Um, and then the second thing I was going to say was about procedural history. In these cases, as a practical matter, procedural history can basically determine the case. I think the fact that this is a summary judgment case, you know, essentially, at least for the dissent, determines, determines the case. Don't worry about that either. You're going to figure out this procedural history thing as you go, right? And if you show up and, and you know, if this is a contracts case, it's a contracts case. I'm going to be there to teach you contract law and to talk about contract law. And if you kind of miss the fact that it's a summary judgment, uh, that the case is on summary judgment as opposed to a judgment notwithstanding the verdict, like, that is probably not going to be a big deal. That's the kind of thing that you're going to be able to recover from in class and go, oh, yeah, good point. Right? That shouldn't be the thing that we focus on. So uh, it will matter in the long run, but you'll get used to using those concepts. They will become second nature to you. Do not. Do not sweat that upfront about you know, where it happened. You should think about it, but like with all of these things, you're gonna be getting used to that. And those are really general terms and skills that are gonna to apply to all these different classes. So, I mean, the reason, the reason why we do it this way, or at least why some of us do it this way, not all of us engage in Socratic dialogue, but you know, um, a fair amount of us do, is really, you know, we're asking you questions because we want you to ask you questions. You know, whenever, you are looking at these cases, and this is basically a restatement of what Professor Cohen just said. You know, when you come to something, you should be asking yourself, why did they say that? What prompted them to say that? Why do they think that the relevant standard is different or um, uh, inferior? You know, what drove them to that? Oh, they cited this case. That's their justification. You know, well, why is that a good justification? Well, in the common law system, started decisis means something, yada, 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 right? And you just kind of keep going with that a little bit. And that kind of questioning will become second nature, right, as you go. But it's hard to develop 
at the beginning. And that is basically why we're doing this. If we wanted you to memorize the rules of contract law, I could put up a PowerPoint, we could do this like in an hour and a half, and we could all take the rest of the semester off, right? That is not what we're doing here. We're trying to develop this habit of questioning, right? You should be questioning everything that you read. As you go through, just ask another question. And, and so you'll say something, and I'll ask you a question about that, right? To get you ostensibly to ask yourself the question that I'm asking you. Oh, why do I think that McLean didn't have to take this other job? Well, why do I think going to Australia is worse than going to Los Angeles? You know, from whose perspective does it matter? You should keep basically asking yourself those kinds of questions, and that's what we're doing. So, so long as you've got the fodder, right, the facts and the rules and the procedural history and an understanding sort of of what's happening in the case, then we'll talk about what the relevant questions are. And like I said, you will start to do this yourself, right? You'll start doing it to yourself. You'll start doing it all the time. I can tell you, right? Your relatives will not be happy with yeah, you. This, is, <laughs> this turns out not to be a good aspect of your marriage sometimes. <laughs> Right? That you know, being married to somebody who engages in this constant questioning uh, can be a little taxing, or at least so I've been told by someone I'm married to. <laughs> right? But it will become basically sort of second nature to you, and that's why we really go through, uh, go through this. So we want you to uh, explore those ideas. We want you to explore the ideas that are developed in the case. We want you to do that through questioning. And that's basically why we wind up asking all these questions. And so that's really what we're coming to class to do, is to go through that kind of interactive questioning with you. And because for some of these cases, you know, like this case, you know, Parker, if you were really into mitigation of damages as a rule, we could probably derive this case without knowing the facts of Parker at all. We could just have a conversation and probably come up with this. So, and that's true of a lot of different things. So um, uh, that's really what we're, uh, into, uh, you know, you're, you are kind of stuck though with the role that you're, that you have in the case. So, you know, I think for a variety of reasons, the majority's got a real problem with the way that they derive the rule. I think that probably became clear as the conversation progressed. Um, Maureen is stuck with that, right? So, you know, the fact that I don't like the way that the majority came up with the rule is not Maureen's problem. Right? And, and that's okay, right? She's kind of stuck with it. Sometimes, the, sometimes we'll ask you to comment on what they did. Sometimes we just want you to make the argument. Um, you know, I put her in their shoes and I, and I put Seth in the dissent's shoes. You can do it with the two different sides. There's all sorts of different ways you can do this. You should get used to doing that too. You're not, you're not, not only are you not their arguments, you're not your arguments. You get to make arguments that you don't agree with. Right? That's one of the freedoms that you have as a lawyer and certainly as a law student. You should be trying them out. That's the only way that you can test them. And you know, when Professor Cohen talks about it, it sounds like an awful lot of work. But like I said, you know, walking is actually an awful lot of work. It just becomes kind of second nature and this, and this will at some level uh, as well. Um, but that's, that's really what's behind the cold calling. And then you know, there are any number of ways or reasons why we will focus on what we focus on in a case. And so, you know, it could be because of the connection that it has to another case. It could be because of something we're thinking about talking about in a few weeks 
There's any number of reasons why we might emphasize one aspect or another in the case. If that wasn't what you were going to emphasize in the case, that's fine too. Um, I, so I didn't, I ended our conversation by saying, all right, I think that's good, right? So that's not how I end conversations in class. Um, the way that I always basically end conversations in class the same way, I say, any questions? Right? And that's actually what we were going to sort of talk about next. Um, uh, Oh no! I wasn't saying that to you. I was saying that to y'all. That was uh, that was part of this. I mean, oh, so another another thing that I will do sometimes, you know, people come in. They've been they're coming from lunch or they're thinking about something else or whatever. I will ask people if they've seen a Shirley MacLaine movie, right? Don't worry about it. Uh, you know, just just a little conversation, right? Maybe it's irrelevant. <laughs> So every now and then, professors will say something that is not relevant to figuring out the case, or maybe they are big Shirley MacLaine fans, or maybe not so much, right, or whatever. So, um, you know, again, it's not, you know, you can imagine walking out of the class and going, oh my god, I've got to see the Shirley MacLaine movie. And <laughs> you do not. Although Terms of Endearment is quite a tearjerker, there's no doubt about it. Um, so. Uh, we were going to talk about... Uh, Can I just say one more oh, thing? Sure, please? Please. Yeah, so what, just uh, picking up on, on one thing that Professor Nakwar said about the, the, the reasons we, we read cases and we, we ask questions. Uh, I mean, I think w one way to think about it that, that goes along with what he was saying is it's almost like uh, when you're learning law, you're learning how to practice law. So, I mean, practice is a very good word. Uh, it's almost like you're learning a sport or you're learning an instrument. So if you were learning an instrument, like a trumpet, right, uh, it's one thing if someone says, okay, tell me how you would finger a B-flat. It's another thing to actually play it, right? So uh, when, you, when you're reading law, you, know, you can sort of say, okay, well, I understand what the rule is, but unless you're actually using it, unless you're playing it, unless you're doing, you're using it and, and uh, massaging it and, 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 and stretching it and, and trying to use it in some way that a lawyer would use it, you're not really getting the full extent of what lawyers actually do, how lawyers actually practice. So when we're asking questions, we are actually training you to do law. This is what doing law is. It's like learning to play an instrument. It's like learning to play a sport. You are practicing that activity. It's an activity. It's not just, it's just not a set of, uh, a set of rules. Actually goes to sort of, actually both the next, I think the next two topics, right, about asking questions in class, uh, and then we were gonna talk a little bit about, about post-class um, uh, wrap-up kinds of things. So, uh, you know, I, I only have, I guess I have a couple of things to say about asking questions in class, and I think we should open it up a little bit more. The first is, you should do it, right? Um, you know, going exactly to what uh, Professor Cohen said, you know, as you're, as we're going through this, the point is not to learn the rule about, you know, employee mitigation of damages in California in 1970, right? It's to go through the exercise of doing the analysis and, and thinking about it, and and so you should be doing that in your head as we're going, and you're going to have questions that come up, right? And if they're relevant, go ahead and ask them. Um, I learn, I learn something from students every class. Right? Every class I teach, a student will ask a question that I will get something out of. So you're all really smart people. We're not going to talk about all the stuff that's in the case. You know, we're going to talk about the stuff that we think is important, but you got questions or you want to connect it back to something else or whatever, ask them. You should be thinking as you're going so that you can ask questions if you've got them. Okay? The big corollary to that is when your colleagues ask questions, listen. Right? So both 
chances are pretty good that if somebody else is asking a question, it's a good question, right? And if you didn't think of it, well, maybe, you know, that's okay. Like you should be thinking about it, right? That uh, they're gonna wind up asking stuff that you didn't think about and that's good. You have a lot of other people there uh, who are really also really smart, who are thinking about stuff. They might ask stuff that you didn't, it's about an issue that you didn't even see. You can learn an awful lot um, that way. Um, and, you know, also you're gonna wanna listen to the exchange, right, that happens as a result of the question. So, you know, definitely, definitely, I would say, I, from my perspective as a professor, it's great when people ask questions, but don't tune out just because it was another one of your colleagues who asked a question. That's a temptation. I actually don't permit commuters in class for most of my classes, but for the ones in which I do, you know, I can hear when people are typing and when they're not, and I can tell that people stop typing when their colleagues ask questions, and I think that's a, that's a big mistake. You should really be paying attention when your colleagues are asking questions. Yeah, even if, even if you don't agree with them, you should be thinking about why you don't agree with them. If someone makes a statement that you think is silly or, or that you think is, is wrongheaded, then you should be trying to formulate in your head, okay, what, how would I phrase this differently? How would I respond to that question? How, how would I think about it? Because, again, if you think about what lawyers actually do, lawyers are constantly in that kind of position. You're sitting in a, in a courtroom, and the lawyer for the other side is, is having a discussion with the court or having a discussion with a witness. And you want to think, okay, well, is that a fair question? Is that a legitimate point of view? Do, you know, how am I going to respond to, uh, to that? If a, if a partner is talking to another partner and you're sitting in the room in a meeting, you know, and they're, they're making arguments back and forth, and, and you might say to yourself, that's not a good argument. We can't win on that argument. So you always need to be listening to what other people are saying because uh, whether you agree with it or not, you want to be evaluating it. And that's a constant practice, a constant skill that you need to be developing. So, uh, so I completely agree with, uh, with that. Now, um, w one other thing, going back to the, how we learn from questions, uh, not only do we learn things because people ask questions that we, we hadn't thought of, but questions, even if you think they're dumb questions or bad questions, are very helpful for the professors because they help us learn where you're not getting it. If you're not getting something, then we need to correct it. Right, we need to figure, you know, we need to explain, okay, all right, I can see you're, this is not really getting through to you. I need to explain this a different way. So you're actually helping us explain things in a, in a better way. If you don't ask the questions, we have no idea. We think, okay, you got it, fine, we're moving on, right? And then, you know, the train has left the station. You lost your chance to, to sort of ask, I mean, you could come after to office hours and things like that, but, but this way, it's, it's, it's something that everyone can benefit from if you ask the question in, uh, in class. Now, you know, sometimes there, there will be times where some professors might uh, cut off questions or stop questions because they want to get to the next case or they're trying to stay on schedule or things like that or they might say, you know, could we take this up after class or come to my office hours or things like that. So, so again, don't take that personally. It's just that there are competing goals here. Yes, we want to answer all your questions, but we also want to try to, you know, uh, stick to a certain kind of schedule. I'm, I'm less of a scheduled person than other people are, but I know there are people who are very much stick, stick, stick to the schedule kind of people. So, so again, it, it doesn't mean that we're not interested in the question. We're very interested in the questions, but sometimes people need to uh, cut them off or, or, or make, make room for other kinds of, uh, other kinds of goals. The, the other thing that I would mention in terms of uh, class participation is, um, and again, this goes along with what we've been saying, is there is no shame in being wrong. Uh, and there is no shame in saying, I don't know. You know, I mean, sometimes you just, you don't know. I mean, uh, or if you're wrong, you know, all right, 
I was wrong, I, I misread that, or yeah, I didn't see that, or something. That's, that's fine, that's part of the learning process. This is where it's okay to make mistakes, right? Nothing, someone's life is not hanging in the balance if you make a mistake here. So this is where you should make the mistakes uh, so that you can learn from them, and then when you're out practicing law, hopefully you won't make as many, at least as many important ones here. So, so that's part of what the learning experience is. It's not something to be uh, embarrassed about. We all are, I mean, we can't help it. That's human nature, especially type A personalities like all of us, all right? So you always want to be right all the time. I understand that, I'm the same way. Uh, but, you know, at, in the back of your head, just keep in mind, it's, it's okay. It's okay to be wrong, your life will not end. Most people will forget about it the next day. They won't even remember what you said or what you were wrong. You know, I, I think, I, I remember the first year I was teaching, you know, I, I was teaching a case and I completely blanked out in the middle of class. And I just, I couldn't remember what case we were doing, what I was asking or anything. And I, I probably stood there for maybe 30 seconds until it came back to me. And I went back to my office after the, the class was done and I said, that's it, I can't be a professor. I can't do it. <laughs> uh, it's, I, you know, I, I, it's, I'm a failure, uh, you know, that no one's gonna pay attention to me. And I came back, you know, I, I, I got over, I came back the next day and everyone was there. And it's like, it never happened. <laughs> You know, and I went on and then, you know, so um, to, to people who were sitting out there listening, you know, maybe they thought, oh, that's weird. He, he just sort of stopped talking. But, you know, then he went on. You know, so, uh, but they didn't hold it against me. And, and your classmates won't hold it against you. I mean, it'll mean a lot more to you than it will to them. And so, you know, again, yes, it, it's, it, it's painful. No one wants to be wrong. But don't, it's not the end of the world. Beth Maureen, do you have thoughts about question, asking questions in class, what you get out of it, what you don't? Yeah, I would say um, the one thing that really goes through my head if I'm about to raise my hand, first off, is is this something that's going to benefit the class? But I think there have been times in class where somebody raises their hand and asks some off-the-wall hypothetical in a world that will never happen, and you're sitting there going, like, oh, my God. Like, But I feel like more often than not, if something's burning in your mind, it's burning in everybody's mind, especially this first year. And I think it's really, you're going to feel like people are going to view you as being a gunner or like super nerdy if you're, you're constantly raising your hand. But for me, I'm sitting here going, you know what, this, this education isn't free and I'm here to learn from experts, wow, seriously, <laughs> and I'm here to learn from the experts in my field. And these, when you're sitting in a class with Professor Cohen, Professor Nockbar on contracts, they're here teaching that for a reason. Ask the question. And I think as you go, you're going to start getting more and more confident that people aren't thinking that you're stupid or people, you know, they're going, oh my God, I'm so glad you asked that because I've been thinking the same thing for the last hour. Like, what does mitigation mean? And I still don't know what mitigation means. <laughs> so I, I would just echo that the, I think for generally people come in and think that like the classroom is this scary militaristic environment where if you get an answer wrong, like they're marking your grade down. And it, I think I would just urge you to come in prepared, do the best you can to read. If, if you don't 100% understand everything, just trust that by the end of class, you're going to work through all that. Uh, if you get called on and, and you're not getting it right, your classmates are all sitting there thinking what they would be saying anyway. Nobody's going to remember it. And my first cold call, I literally, uh, my class had like bailout partners and they didn't know they were my bailout partners. So she's like, well, bailout partners, would you you know like to help them out? And they didn't know. And so everybody just sat there and stared at me for like five <laughs> minutes. And then they were like, oh, anyway. And But nobody remembers that. Here we are two years later. I did fine. I got through it. And... Um, so I just, I would take what they're saying as this opportunity to come into class, 
with with an understanding of what you think the case is, what you think is going on, and like he said, be open to that changing. Sometimes somebody's question will make you realize, I didn't understand this case. I thought I did, but I don't. Um, or if you're that person that's like, I can't get to the next part of this without understanding this one thing, but I think everybody else looks really confused too, raise your hand and ask it. And I think you're going to get more confident um, in doing that and being able to, to speak in front of people. And I, that's a whole part of this process too. So uh, don't view cold calls in class as this super scary thing where everybody's judging you and people are going to think you don't belong here. I have messed up so many times in class and had professors tell me very politely, like, I don't think you got that. I don't, you know, and I'm going, okay, I'm glad because otherwise, why are we here? So um, just take a deep breath, go into the first class, do the best that you can. And nobody here is out to, to belittle you or make you feel bad about not understanding the cases or the law because that's the whole reason we're here. And if they do try to belittle you, let me know. And I'm little, but I can find <laughs> is really important. I think something else, as Professor Cohen was explaining, like there are a lot of things to keep track of. There are a lot of things going on. And don't, like, if it takes you an hour to get through this six-page case, yeah, like it's dense. It's going to take you a long time. So don't get discouraged. Don't get scared. Just put forth your best effort. Um, and can I just say the first case I read, True Story, was seven pages. It took me three hours. Yeah. Lost my mind and in tears, but whatever. <laughs> I read this case today, and it took me about 25 minutes to understand at least like the basics of what was going on. And it's like a six or seven page case, so like you get better at it as you go. And don't, I mean, don't let that. I literally went home and was like, I'm dropping out. <laughs> uh, Realize that what you're learning is is complex and that it's not scary. Yeah. For me, I end up having to read every case that I get assigned at least twice, just because, and this will happen to all of you at some point, you read it the first time and you, it could have been in a different language. Like, I don't know what I just did for the last hour. I couldn't tell you that mitigation was even an issue in this. Like, let's retool, regroup, figure it out. And don't be discouraged with by that. Just keep going. Um, something that I, figured out during my 1L year is that a lot of things in law school sound scary, but they're just things that you've been doing your whole life. They just have a new, different, scary name, right? So a cold call, you're just answering a professor's question. You've, you're all excellent students. That's how you ended up here. Like, you got this. You know what you're doing. It just has a new, fancy, scary name. You know how to do this. You've been doing it for years. You're just having a conversation with your professor. Um, and I think asking questions in class when you have real questions is helpful. I ask more dumb questions than anyone else, but other people have those same questions. Um, I think where it starts to be tricky is when um, like professors get impressed by your questions, but this is not the time to be impressing them. So if you're going on Lexis and looking up discussion questions and then posing them as though they're your own question to try to be impressive, right? Like. That's probably. Do people do that? People do that in my How about that? I learned something. All right. Yeah, and when you have genuine questions, they are so helpful to everyone. Um, and I think talking with your friends is really beneficial, right? So when I don't understand things, you're going to be in a section, you're going to know each other. Talk about it. That's what you guys are here for. It's going to make you more 
prepared, it's going to make you understand things better, and it's going to make it so that when you get into class and you have a cold call, you've been talking about the law. You have sort of a firmer understanding of the words and how to use them and how um, these kinds of conversations actually look like. And then the one other thing that I'll say, reading these cases are hard. There are resources online that you might want to turn to or like supplements or things that give you an <coughs> overview of the cases and you might be tempted to look at those things before a cold call, especially in the beginning because you don't want to feel silly. Um, and I would just urge you to stay away from those, at least at the very beginning, because that is a disservice to yourself. A big part of law school is trying and failing and trying again and grappling with really hard things until they eventually become easier for you. And if you are sort of searching out crutches at the beginning, it's just going to make it harder for you moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... Right. I think that's right. I hadn't really thought about the supplement thing. But again, you know, we're not really here. You can get rules out of the supplement. It's not going to do you any good. We were going to talk a little bit about um, after class uh, as well, though. I think it goes to, to Maureen's point about before class, which is so I start I start most of my classes with a little recap of what I did in the last class. Um, not everybody does that, but I would think about trying to do that after class, you know, get some time, a little perspective, sit down and think about, well, so, you know, how would I put this together with the other stuff or how did my perspective change or whatever? It doesn't have to be a big formal thing. The biggest thing I would say is talk to your colleagues, you know, and it goes to what Professor Cohen said about practice. The more you talk about this stuff, the better, right? And so, uh, and, and the discussion you have with them is going to be basically the same kind of thing as the discussion that you have with us, uh, except for there aren't as many of you. So it's going to be more interactive discussion. But the more that you can talk to each other about what you're studying and what you're learning, the better. It's, you know, the, the study group thing, um, uh, you're going to be, so like the paper chase, any of you see the paper chase? Like, so two things about the paper chase, well, maybe three things about the paper chase. One is a study group is not a place for you to extract information from other people. And it's not a place for them to extract information from you. That just is not what happens. I mean, you can try to do that. It's not going to happen. Um, you know, I learned criminal law basically by explaining it to one of my classmates when I was in law school. Um, you know. And I got much, much more out of that conversation than she did. I guarantee you, right? So the interaction is really what helps you, right? The second thing about the paper chase is that the Socratic dialogue in the paper chase is absolutely horrible, not good. Um, Legally blonde is better. And then in, in so many ways. And then, um, and then the third thing about the paper chase is that you two are capable of becoming insufferable as the protagonist in the paper chase. So be careful about that. But. Um, but uh, you know, definitely, you know, spend time working with your colleagues outside of class. Uh, it is, I think, you know, other than being prepared, you know, just having the basics of preparation done for class, it's the most valuable thing that you can do here. It's just talking with each other about what you're doing in class. I think we're sort of at the end of the hour. So, done. so if you have any questions, we're going to be around, or I think we're going to be at the, the social. Uh, yes. Social. So please. Uh, come talk to us. Good luck.